following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 131. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there should be one in the pew back in front of you. You'll find today's reading on page 486. If you don't own a Bible, please take one home as a gift from Park Church. Again, we're reading from Psalm 131. A Song of Ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, Hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Um, Yeah, we are in Psalm 131. It is the second shortest psalm in the Psalter. Doesn't mean it's going to be the second shortest sermon in the series. Sorry. Um, We'll see. It's not a long one, but... um, yeah, I, maybe to begin, a little bit of a, a confession and a plea for help. I'm, I'm in danger of binging on a particular TV show. Uh, thankfully, even if I were to like stack three of these in a row, the total amount of time is only like 21, 22 minutes. Um, the show kind of at, at stake here is none other than Bluey. Come on, Bluey's about to appear. Bluey. I've lost battery. Maybe? There it is. Bluey. I, I've gotten sucked into Bluey. My, my boys love Bluey, and I, you know, sometimes kind of like, oh, that's, that's a cool little kid's show. But this one, I'm like, no, they're, they're brilliant. Like they, they take real-life principles, things that you and I all walk through, and somehow they, they distill it and scale it to a kid's world in such a creative way that's always convicting. I'm like... This is, this is true. Like, I see myself in this six-year-old cartoon puppy um, over and over again, and I have to, I have to promise my boys that I, I won't watch ahead um, when, they, when they go to sleep. Um, but all these nice little seven-minute episodes. So you got, you got Bluey, this blue healer dog, this puppy. She's always up for an adventure, uh, fun, creative. And then there's her dad, Bandit, um, who I aspire to be one day. Uh, they're next to him. And then you kind of see her sister, Bingo. She's kind of the orangish-brown, kind of tucked there in the wagon. Uh, this, this came to mind when, when thinking through this psalm, uh, this particular episode. It, it's where, where Bluey and her, her sister, Bingo, they're like, hey, we want to go to the monkey bars. We want to get to the monkey bars. We want to get there by wagon. And so their dad, Bandit, grabs the wagon. You know, they're kind of heading down the sidewalk on the way to the park. And... And he, he stops off to, to talk to a friend. You know, sees a, a friend on the sidewalk and they talk for a minute and, and Bluey's having none of it. It was like, 
frustrated, kind of chirping at him, like trying to pull him away. And, and the friend gets the idea and moves along. And, and her dad's kind of frustrated because like, hey, I was trying to talk to a friend and you just kind of annoyed him out of here. And this, this dialogue began between the two of them. She says this to, to her father. Okay, dad, I've got a plan. You're not allowed to stop the wagon and chat to your friends. You have to take us straight to the monkey bars. No stopping. And he replies, hmm, interesting plan. How about this plan? I'll do what I want to do, and you don't tell me what to do. (laughs) And she very quickly says, no, I don't like that plan. We'll stick with mine, thanks. And then Bandit replies, okay, no problems. And then he turns the wagon around and starts to head home. And she goes, wait, no, okay, your plan. Good decision. And so the, the, the whole episode kind of opens up. It's this, this idea of, of having to wait. He, he sees a few more friends along the way, and, and here's Bluey just like frustrated out of her mind that she has to wait to get to the monkey bars. And, you know, she's learning this new skill, the whole like, hey, put, put your hand on my arm. That lets me know that you're waiting, and then I'll, I'll talk to you when I can. But, but really what happens in this, you know, seven-minute episode is new aspects of, of this little cartoon character's soul begins to open up in the waiting. She looks over at her sister, who's also waiting, her four-year-old sister, and she's like embracing the, the wonder and the beauty of the moment in the midst of the waiting. And she begins to, to think, maybe there's a, a different pathway for me in the midst of the waiting. Sure, I don't have the intended outcome. I don't have the thing that I want. Maybe we'll never get there. I don't know at this point. But she begins to change in the midst of that. And that's where the conviction comes in. I'm like, ah, sure, I can say that's like this kid puppy in a TV show, but how often is this me? How often in the different areas of waiting in my life, I'm like, no, I, I need the thing. We need to be here. And I'm frustrated out of my mind because I don't really understand why we're not here and why things are not changing and why my life is not different and why this life season hasn't changed and why, why this person continues to, to respond this way and why... Why are things this way? I want them to be different. We have such a hard time with the waiting. Well, sometimes we see the brilliance of Scripture in the way that that the Psalms are put together, even next to one another. And so Joel uh, preached last week out of Psalm 130. And there's this one section, verses 5 and 6. I'm going to read it again out of Psalm 130. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. And what, what commentators have found is, is really Psalm 131, even the placement of it immediately after Psalm 130 is saying, he, here, here we're kind of camping out in those two verses and saying, what's the nature of this waiting? What is God doing in the midst of the waiting? What, what, what is he drawing out? What does he intend to do in us and through us as we are waiting, as we are longing for things to be different? And things are not changing. Things have not become what we want them to be. Even we can make a really good case why it should be different, but they haven't changed. And Psalm 131 gives us a deeper look into the nature of the waiting. Charles Spurgeon said that Psalm 131 is One of the shortest psalms to read, yes, but one of the longest to learn. And I think we we can all relate as we move through this. Uh, 
This also connects us to where we are in the Psalter more broadly. Uh, There's a group of 15 psalms called the the Psalms of Ascent. You'll see there in the uh, the superscript right there, a song of ascents of David. That's part of the inspired text. Uh, It's a group of 15 from Psalm 120 to 134. Uh, These psalms were were most likely the the things that were sung and recited and, and, and thought about and processed as the people of God were moving toward the presence of God in Jerusalem. So as they were, they were on pilgrimage, and they were literally moving up, as they, they went up toward the temple, these are the things that they are thinking through, that they're praying, that they're singing, individually, corporately, what's working through in their lives. And so bringing this together, the, the movement toward God and the, the nature of waiting, in one sense, in the midst of the waiting, we bump up against the presence of God, maybe in ways we didn't anticipate. At its very heart, when we are waiting and feel unable to control our, our, our life circumstances or the outcomes or where things are, we begin bumping into the transcendent, something that is outside of our control, something that, that we can't kind of uh, get our, our grasp upon and to change immediately. And so in our waiting, we approach God. Willingly or unwillingly, we're, we're, we're moving toward God just as the psalmist is. And I've found when, when we move toward the transcendent, when we move toward the things that we can't control, when we move toward God himself, there's really one of two ways that we can go. On the one hand, we say, I, I don't like not being the one who's in control. I need to change this. I, I want to overtake where I sense there's a control outside of mine. I, I, I want to manipulate things. I want to kind of gain that seat of authority. I want to be in the position. I want to be enthroned. I want to be able to to change it on my timetable in the way that I think it should be done. And the other response is to submit, is to humble ourselves. It's to say, I I am unable to control. I am unable to to change what's around me. I can't control the people around me. I can't actually dictate what's happening. And 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 I'm in a position that, that lowers me and recognizes someone outside of myself. We're humbled by it. We choose to submit. And from there, my mind went to a hot air balloon in Versailles, France, in the year 1783. There is a, uh, a French historian, um, actually English historian, writes a lot on, on French history, that in many ways attributes the French Revolution to the invention and the onset of the hot air balloon being released amongst this large group of people Oh, there we, there we go. There, there we have it. 1783 in Versailles, you've got 100,000 plus people, maybe up to 130,000 people there. And the first time they've ever seen a balloon just flying on its own. And they are mesmerized. Their, their imaginations are just blown away because they didn't know this was possible. And all this is actually taking out taking place outside of kind of the, the absolute control of the monarchy and the state and even the, the religious order. And, and these people are gathering and seeing it. And it, the way that he, he traces this is saying something kind of came loose in people's minds and thinking, hey, we can overtake the transcendent. The, the, the thing that, that we thought was outside of our control, the thing that we thought always was going to be kind of over top of us, we, we can actually step outside of and begin to define these things a little bit differently. Here's the way that he says it. Wrong page. 
The sense that they were witnessing a liberating event, an augury of a free-floating future, gave them a kind of temporary fellowship in the open air. Under the Parisian summer drizzle, though it was less grimly calisthenic than the Neo-Spartan gymnastics recommended by Rousseau, it exemplified the philosopher's vision of a festival of freedom, uplifting glimpses of the sublime in which the experience, not the audience, was noble. And I think in this, we see something that has characterized our age over the past few hundred years and probably even more so over the past 30 years or so, that is just in our bloodstream. That when we sense a limit, when we sense an obstacle, when we sense something that would keep us from our intended outcomes or our future or where we want to go, the prevailing kind of conventional wisdom in our society would say, we'll blow through those limits. Break down whatever barrier is there. You actually have what is necessary within you. You just have to, to kind of dig a little bit deeper. You have to discern it. You have to find the right life hack or the right strategy or read the right book or the right podcast or get the right group of people around you. You actually can blow through the thing that you thought was unattainable if you just work a little bit harder. You have what it takes on your own. And so often, this is the way that we approach life in the midst of the waiting. We don't listen to the wisdom of the waiting, but rather try to, to blow through it, to push through it in a way that, that elevates ourselves. We see a different approach in the psalm. Look at me in verse 1. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. You know, this language, very similar language to the way it's translated shows up um, in Psalm 121 and then Psalm 123 as well. But there's a difference. In those places, it's talking about lifting our eyes to behold God, the, the one who helps us, the one who comes to our defense, uh, the one that we're dependent upon, the one that we need, the one that we worship, the one that we look to when we recognize our deficiency. But here, and the word's a little bit different, even though it gets translated in a similar way, here, it's, it's not looking up to the one who is over us and above us and pleading with him for help, but it's actually saying, I'm lifting my heart, I'm lifting my eyes, I'm lifting my mind up into this lofty place to look down upon others, even God himself. I'm now the one. I, I, I'm in the position. I'm the one who's on the throne. I can be the one who's in control. And the psalmist is saying, I reject that way of being. As, as I move toward you, oh God, as I, I begin to, to, to catch more of a glimpse of who you are, in the midst of my waiting, in the midst of coming toward you, I find myself lowering before you, recognizing that that is not my position to hold. You are the one who holds my life in your hands. You are the sovereign one. You are the glorious one. You are the limitless one. You are the powerful one. You are the one who holds my life, who holds the details of it, who sees all of it. And I will gladly submit to you, recognizing that is not my place to hold. This is the first point I want us to see. Waiting erodes our pride. It erodes our pride. It doesn't always just totally decimate it. Maybe sometimes it does. But a lot of times it's kind of a slow undermining that doesn't feel all that great, but is good for us. It begins to expose and then erode our pride. But even as we, we talk about pride, so many different definitions and how that comes out can, can kind of come through our minds. Um, I want to give five quick angles on pride. 
And the first one probably being the, the most obvious. We strive to prove ourselves. Because maybe we most, most often think of, of pride or arrogance. It's, it's kind of people expect me to be something in this particular environment, and so I'm going to project that. I'm going to pretend to be that, or I'm going to kind of infl- inflate my sense of self to talk about my accomplishments or my achievements or who I am. Uh, here's who I am. Don't you like me now? Won't you approve of me? Won't you kind of accept me and take me in? So we, we think in, in work, I need to be this way. And that group of friends, I need to project this over here. And my, my family over here, I need to, to be something slightly different. Where we, we show up, we often shape shift because we think, I got to be that to be okay, to be sufficient, to be adequate, to be deemed by others, to be enough. So we can tend to Overtalk, be defensive, dismiss, other, dismiss others, emphasize our own successes or achievements. And we exhaust ourselves trying to be something that is disconnected from reality. And it turns out most of the time people are aware that that's what we're doing. That's the first. Second, we overextend ourselves. We feel our own sin, our brokenness. We see brokenness in the world. And we see uh, things that people are walking through. We see the effects of our sin. And we're like, okay, I need to, I need to make all the things happen. I need to kind of correct the mistakes. I need to, to work a little bit harder. Um, I need to schedule more, be more places. I, I get overwhelmed when I look. I do it to myself. But I, I get overwhelmed when I look at all the different colors on the Google Calendar. I don't know if you guys use colors on whatever calendar system you use online. If you do that. But like, how, how is this possible. Like, how can I be in three places at the same time? And then I'm also aware of like all these other schedules that are overlaid with mine. We overextend ourselves thinking that if we can just kind of get a little bit more of what we have to offer out there, things are going to be okay. We don't rest. We're not sleeping well. We're more marked by anxiety. We think if we just kind of offer up a little bit more, somehow, somehow that's going to solve it. Third, we attempt to control outcomes, probably connected to the previous one, but this is where we, we kind of have some idealized version of the way things ought to be or must be for us to be okay. Maybe it's a person in our life, but you've got to change in these ways. You've got to be like that. This relationship needs to look like this, or my life circumstances need to, to be rearranged in such a way that I, I experience this, or my life season or stage, or... Uh, I need to heal in particular ways or I need, I need to change right now in this kind of way on this timeline. And we think, I can't rest, I can't be okay unless this is the outcome. And then we make ourselves and other people pay for it when that doesn't happen. Fourth, we redefine the good for ourselves. Uh, God, your way really isn't working for me. Waiting, trusting, believing your promises it doesn't seem to be panning out the way that I, I wanted it to, that I thought it would, that I thought you said it would. I need to start stepping outside of the bounds of what you define as good and true and right and beautiful. I'm going to chart a different path. We claim to be wiser than God. We claim to understand how we're wired as human persons, what leads to joy and life and satisfaction, our contentment. We try to redefine the good. And then fifth, maybe most pronounced in the midst of our, our waiting is we grasp at the why. Very natural to do this. Makes sense why we do. I find myself so often, whether large or small, whatever issue, it's like things are not the way that I thought they should be. Why? Why, God? What are you up to? What are you doing? Why is it not different? 
What's your thinking behind this? How, how does this square with other things I know about your character? Why? And I think we can just plague ourselves with this question when really God is saying, you should be asking the question, who? Who is God? Who is God with you? Who is God for you? Who is God in the midst of the waiting? Who is God making you to be in the midst of the waiting? And are we learning to, to grow content with him, to rest with him, to be with him? And so if waiting exposes, if it, if it erodes our different areas of pride, well, we need a different path. We begin to see that in verse 2. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. I've calmed and quieted my soul. Now, the word quiet just simply means silent. There's absence of noise, which is really difficult to do in a society that almost constantly has a buzz to it. I mean, it's even difficult for us to sleep in a different room than our phones, right? So, like, we're always connected almost to social media, someone's texting me, I need to pay attention to the news, I need to be aware, ESPN, what's the latest on the Nuggets, what's Jokic's ankle injury like for the next game tomorrow night, um, hopefully he's doing okay. We're just, like, constantly these different threads of communication and information that they can just flurry our minds and just to find quiet and stillness is so difficult. This word calm, and maybe we think like day at the spa, which I guess is not totally disconnected, but this is, it's so much more pronounced than kind of like give me all the creature comfort, comforts and away from like the stress of life. This is, the word could be translated conformed. I've conformed my soul. Conform my soul to be aligned with the emotional state of another. Uh, to, to, to come into alignment, to, to recognize uh, relationally, to, to begin to settle into the peace of another. And the psalmist is saying that I, I've calmed and quieted my soul. I don't need to elevate myself. I don't need to defend my pride. I don't need to be something. I don't need to overextend. I've kind of forfeited that in your presence as I approach you. And instead, I, I've learned to be in this place of, of quiet and still. Blaise Pascal is famous for saying, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. What are we afraid of in the stillness? Like, what are we concerned that we're going to start to think or feel? What fears are going to come up? What, what, what areas of inadequacy, what, what past experiences or areas of our sin are going to start to come to the foreground? But if and as we're able to do that, to, to embrace and really receive God's embrace in the midst of the stillness, oh, how he offers us freedom, how he trains our souls for the calm. That's the second thing I want us to see. Our souls must be trained to be calm. It's not natural. We tend to be frenetic. We tend to be every which way. We're, we're trying to manipulate and control and make better and think harder and do better and impress in whatever it is, what are the expectations that we place on ourselves, we feel from others, we have to be trained to be calm. And then it moves into this imagery. Like a weaned child with its soul, or with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. It's, it's very uncommon to have such directly feminine imagery applied to, to God our Father which means we should pay attention. 
It's not a common metaphor that's being used. What is God conveying about his heart, about his relationship with his people, about what it looks like to enjoy the calm and the quiet of his presence? When we're rejecting pride, we're moving toward him and receiving what he's put on offer, what is the nature of this relationship? And I think we would do well to pay attention to how God has wired us as human persons, even, even beginning in the womb. Consider a, a baby being formed in the womb and this, this attachment that takes place in relationship to the mother. And then when that baby comes out into the world, you'll often call it the, the fourth trimester, just the, you know, get as much skin to skin as you can. There's, there's so much sense of identity and attachment that's taking place uh, that, that's not conscious. It's, it's, it's so subconscious and unconscious that this child is kind of learning, who am I? Am I received? Am I loved? How do others see me? None of that is, is formalized in thought, but it's, it's all being received from the womb, from the first breaths that are taken, this child with, with eyes that are beginning to take in this world that is entirely foreign to, to the baby, but receiving messages, receiving ideas about who that child is. God has formed us. He has wired us for attachment, for connections, and in that to know and understand who we are. Kurt Thompson puts it this way. When a baby is born, she interprets her sense of self, and by extension, her sense of her own mind by what she sees, hears, touches, feels, and experiences from her primary caregivers. She does not independently have a sense of her own mind. She will acquire it, but it will be based on how she sees herself in her mother's eyes, so to speak. And what she sees will depend on what her parents sees in the first place. If her mother mentalizes well, attunes and responds in a healthy way to her baby's needs, the infant will develop a particular sense of herself and of the mind of her mother. She will see her mother seeing her in a loving light. If her mother does not mentalize well, the baby will experience a different outcome. Either way, she will see herself and come to understand herself primarily through what she witnesses in her mother's responses. This is how God has wired the human brain and the human experience, is that our primary caregivers are giving shape to our identity from the very beginning. And we receive these messages and form different types of attachment. Some are really healthy, some are more more marked by anxiety, some are kind of mixed, some have elements of trauma in them. We all kind of have different pieces of that in our attachments that are formed relationally. But what we see in the midst of our waiting, in the midst of where we don't get the thing that we want on the timeline that we want it or in the way that we want it, how we understand ourselves, how we understand God, that begins spilling out, whether good or bad. And sometimes it comes out, our emotions come out in some really sideways directions toward other people. We see ourselves running toward different substances or in addictive patterns or just relationally, we're just like dumping our, our frustration, our anger, our anxiety on other people, even people that, that we love most, most, most dearly, we're treating them the most poorly. We find ourselves retreat, retreating within ourselves and, and maybe just like frustrated internally, we're experiencing uh, very acute forms of, of depression and anxiety and all of that, we were formed in a particular kind of environment. And in the midst of the waiting, God is drawing those things out and saying, don't look to your own resources. Don't look to your own pride. Don't think that you have enough on your own, but rather look to me. Rather look to me. 
Our tendency so often, sadly, in the church is to say, hey, things aren't right. You, you, you find yourself in a sin pattern. You find yourself going a particular direction. You see yourself relationally coming this way. Well, here's what you need. More information and to try harder. If we can just kind of transfer information to you and then if you can morally exert yourself, that's going to lead to life change. And I have found, I have found, I imagine many of you have as well, it doesn't lead to change except that maybe there's more shame. Maybe there's more recognition of just like my deficiency and not being able to do it. We so often know the answers. We know the theology. We know the, the beauty of God's word. and we, We've come to love it and believe it's true. But somehow we can't get it into our souls in such a way that in real time we're responding differently. Our lives are, are marked by this love, by the beauty of what God has invited us to. It's because information transfer with moral exertion is not the way that God has designed the human person to grow over time. Truth is essential. Applying ourselves, absolutely necessary. But there is more to how God has made us and what he wants to do in and through us. I so appreciate how Jim Wilder brings these together. The slower conscious track, so speaking of the mind, how we process, the slower conscious track is an emissary sent to correct malfunctions. Useful corrections require true beliefs. For example, bloodletting was once considered the solution for many problems and diseases. When bloodletting was the cure, doctors faithfully drained bad blood out of the sick and wounded. In the same way, if our slow track, conscious thought, expects more truth will transform character, then we will think about truth to try and change character by truth alone. Salvation through attachment to Jesus proposes a different solution. Transformation comes when our mind goes beyond correcting our beliefs to practicing attachment love. False beliefs certainly need correction, but we cannot stop there without correcting our loves. God, God knows how he's made us. He knows what we need. He knows how redemption and restoration works its, its way through the entirety of our lives. And so he, he sent Jesus, who lived in perfect attachment with the Father, and living the life he did, suffering and dying, raising to new life, he says, come, be united to me, be attached to me, be connected to me. And he received the love of the Father. Picture this, this weaned child with its mother that the psalmist describes. Maybe it's not what we expected. Maybe we expect like the, the nursing child with its mother. It was like content, receiving nourishment, uh, getting all that it needs to, to kind of grow strong, and it's kind of built such an intimate moment. But no, here we have a weaned child, one who has learned dependence over time, has received good gifts from the mother, but now is beginning to turn and say, I'm all unconscious, but beginning to be content, just gazing into the mother's eyes, not needing something from the parent, not, not trying to, to grasp and to pull and to say, this is what I need to be okay, but I'm, I'm just content in your presence. I'm with you. And what's happening in that relationship to, I'm enjoyed, I'm seen. The baby's not hearing instructions from its mom saying, hey, if you just like knew a few more things over here and can't you just like kind of get your act together, you figure this, this whole, you know, diapers are expensive. Like if you just figure this thing out, like we can, we can, we can move on and, and quit spending so much money. It's like, no, I, I delight in you because you're here, because I'm with you and I'm for you. 
And over time, this identity is formed. And what if that is to mark our relationship with God our Father, that over time, as we sit in the calm and the quiet, we sit in the stillness, and we hear and we receive his love, that over time we are changed to know, I, I, don't, I don't want the old way of living. I, I find that less appealing, less and less compelling. I actually want the life that God has put on offer to me and it's built upon his love. It's built upon his delight in me because of Jesus. This is where I want to dwell. But Kurt Thompson goes on to say this. God is present with us, but not merely with us physically. He is that to be sure and even closer in the presence of the Holy Spirit. But in Jesus, God comes not simply to be in the same room, but rather to walk right up to us, look us in the eye, touch us on the shoulder, and speak our names out loud. Smile and share a drink with us. All the while, engaging, persuading, challenging, inviting, convicting, and empowering each of us, loving us into new creation. How deep the caring instincts of our Father. That this is the kind of relationship that He's welcomed us into. Yes, He wants us to know true things. Yes, He wants us to repent and believe. But the relationship that we're welcomed into is one marked by love because of the perfection of Jesus. This is the last point that I want us to see. Because of Christ, we emerge in everlasting hope. Because of Jesus, we're able to have this hope that, that establishes us now and carries us into everlasting life with Him. But it truly begins now. It's a hope that that there is a sovereign God who sees us and knows us and and welcomes us to come as we are, to be loved through Jesus, and to know that he's taking the particulars of our lives and he's doing something good with it. That he's actually at work. That he actually sees and cares and knows. And this because of Jesus. We can find it in a lot of different places, but uh, a few places in John where we see how, how attached the Father, Jesus just speaks of, of his attachment with the Father. John 10, 30, I and the Father, and the Father am one, are one. John 5, 19, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. John 4, 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. I'm elsewhere, he says, hey, hey, Thomas, disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus lived his life as the perfect son in complete attachment to the Father. He knew who he was. He received that commendation. He operated with that identity. Because of his life, his perfect life, his suffering and dying on the cross, him raising to new life. He says, I've I've actually purchased the same type of attachment to the Father for all who would come to me. All who just simply say, I'm I'm hungry for that kind of life. I, I desire, I long for that kind of life to be free from the burdens, free from the striving of trying to be enough and to do enough, to simply come to him. He says, you can receive through union with Jesus the same type of love that is given to the perfect son that flows into our lives. What if in the waiting, what if, what if in the particulars of where you long for things to be different, where you feel the tension, where sin is most pronounced in your life, 
where the spiraling of just the effects of sin and brokenness is so heightened for you right now? What if there's an invitation tucked in there by the God of the universe, by the God who made you, by the God who loves you, by the God who sent Jesus to say, will you be still and come before me? Would you receive this love that is for you? Would you begin to to know this identity that I've actually purchased for you and begin to experience through Jesus this same commendation that he received, that you are delighted in, that you are loved, that you do not earn your way back into his presence, but he has given that freely, and he welcomes you in. We're going to do a little exercise a little bit of a risk, but I already did it at the nine, so less of a risk now. Um, something that's been passed down to me that I've, I've done in the past, and it really, it taps on, I think one of the reasons God has given us an imagination. You know, I think a lot of times we, and I'm, I'm one who loves, you know, my, my nightstand is full of like systematic theology, so I, I can geek out on that stuff. But I've just found like reading that does not change me unless it settles into my life. And what if one of the reasons God has given us an imagination is to, is to take the things that we know about God, the things that we know are true about us because of Jesus, and to begin to, to behold them in our mind's eye, to begin to, to receive his voice, to receive these things at a, at a richer, deeper level, to linger in the stillness with those things so that slowly over time they begin to work their way in. So here's the exercise. We're gonna sit in, stil- in stillness and silence. And I want you to consider in, you, in your mind's eye, uh, basically the face of Jesus Christ that is conveying the heart of the Father and looking deeply into to your eyes, into your soul, seeing you and knowing you, and saying this, you are my daughter, you are my son, and I do so love you. I'm so pleased with you and that you are on the earth. And to sit with that, we're going to take a minute or two right now and begin to do it. And this is something that I would, I think I even put it up there. You know, what, if, what if you were to try this for the next month? But what if one of the reasons God has given you an imagination is to take the things that you know to be true about his heart toward you, the theological concepts that you're aware of, and to begin to, to have them sink in through a different avenue that you can begin to receive them. So let's do this now. Let's take a minute or two and behold in your mind's eye and then, and then receive the voice of your father.
Father, we long to know this love at the core of our beings. And sometimes just feel so unable to, to bring uh, the richness of, of Scripture, the richness of your voice, the richness of, of what you've communicated, to, to really get it to settle in the, uh, the, the inner recesses of our souls. And so I ask Spirit that you would do that. Would, would you show us that mercy? May we hear your invitation, receive the invitation. May we know that welcome is for us. That even now as we, we sat in the, in the stillness for a minute or two, the things that began to surface for us, the, the things that we began to, to feel, that we know we, we probably need to pay more attention to, or it's just, it feels really dark to sit with that reality. Oh, would you in your kindness draw near in such pastoral ways as the shepherd of our souls Convince our hearts of your love. Convince, convince our souls of your nearness, of your majestic sovereignty and power to save, your willingness to save, your willingness to deliver, your willingness to be with us in the midst of it. May we learn to be calm and quiet in your presence in the midst of the waiting, even where it feels like death even where you are actually killing things that need to be killed in our lives so that we may experience the life on the other side of that. May we sense your work. May we move forward in confidence. And may we draw near to you even as you draw near to us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.